Hello, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Kian Asani. Today, we are joined by Braden Moore, Executive Vice President and Head of Partnerships and Industry Relations at Wells Fargo. At Wells Fargo, Braden leads business development and partnerships for Wells Fargo's payments business, where he and his team work to grow Wells Fargo's deposit and payments franchise by focusing on customers, partners, and regulators. Before assuming his current role, Braden served as Head of Payment Strategy and also co-founded Wells Fargo's Startup Accelerator, a venture capital program that mentors and invests in innovative startups. Braden, thank you for taking the time out of your tremendously busy day to speak with us. We're thrilled to have you on the Warden FinTech podcast. So you currently serve as the head of partnership and industry relations for Wells Fargo. We'd love to hear more about your background from your MBA coming through your career, ending up at Wells, and a bit about your role at Wells Fargo today. Yeah, no, sure. Uh, Keon, it's a pleasure to be here and uh, excited to be on the uh, Wharton podcast with you. Um, so I like to say I've been working in FinTech for, you know, over 20 years at this point. And actually, uh, you know, my story actually begins when I was in business school. Um, during the summer, I worked at a company uh, by the name of Wit Capital, which was beginning to think about how to challenge Wall Street in terms of IPOs and how to go direct to investors. So it was a really exciting time there in what was being termed a Silicon Alley in New York in 1998. And since then, uh, I've kind of stayed in the space uh, as close to it as I can. Um, when I left uh, NYU where I got my MBA, I actually took a position with Intel and was there for a little over a year. I like to reflect back and kind of characterize what we were doing, which was setting up a global infrastructure of data centers to do at that time what they called managed hosting. Um, but I think what you would uh, find that called today is cloud computing. So it was really an exciting time to, to be there, um, you know, again, 20 years ago when companies were just starting to think about how they could offload the complexity of a data center, uh, harmonize that, come up with some economies of scale and provide that back to, you know, end users or, you know, kind of corporate customers in a way that, um, you know, they could kind of uh, just add and detract servers and, um, you know, had something that was way more scalable and something they didn't have to operate themselves. But I got uh, captivated with an opportunity uh, down at Wells in 2000 and came here and, um, you know, kind of at Wells have worked uh, primarily uh, inside the digital space uh, during my career here, uh, focused originally on building out our channel for our corporate customers that are coming in to conduct their banking. So it's a really important part of our business. We have a lot of digital tools that we've built over the years for them. Uh, really focused on that, and then I started getting into corporate payments and payments in general, which hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about today. And, um, you know, in that whole time period, you know, people outside of the industry uh, have been doing really interesting things, and we've been collaborating all along the way uh, to try to bring the best of technology back to our customers, uh, which is where we kind of start the day, is trying to figure out what we can do, how we can curate uh, and use technology in, in new and different ways to deliver a better experience to our customers. And so I've been doing that um, pretty much throughout my entire career. And then just uh, more recently, you know, really starting to focus on as we think about our customers are doing more in the digital space, how is it that we're going to connect with those customers? How do we uh, market, interact, present products to customers uh, now that they're spending the bulk of their time inside these d different digital environments? That, that's absolutely fascinating. Thank you for the background. As someone who has their finger on the pulse of trends in the payment sector uh, in your current role, what are you seeing as the most interesting adoption trends in the space 
In other words, how are consumers and businesses paying for goods and accepting payments today? Yeah, so I mean, there are a couple of um, you know big trends that I think we've seen in the payments uh, landscape. So, you know, one is just this broad trend from paper uh, to electronic means of payment. Uh, so, paper being cash and checks, and electronic, uh, generally speaking, speaking, being primarily cards. So, think of debit card and credit card. Uh, you've also had um, ACH, which is kind of a bank-to-bank -bank, uh, electronic transfer, the way that a lot of us uh, get paid on Friday. Uh, it also provides a lot of the infrastructure that fintechs are using to move money around. Um, so we have, um, you know, that would count as kind of one of these electronic means as well. So there's been a tremendous migration uh, away from paper towards these different electronic means. And we're seeing that continuing today, and I think we'll see it um, uh, continue into the, the near future, uh, for sure, as, as more and more paper comes out of the system. And you have other trends that you know, have kind of um, crossed the industry as well and are impacting customers. So you know, one of the biggest trends um, that's impacting customers everywhere in their lives, including uh, inside their banking experiences, has been mobile. And that's something that you know, we've leaned into very heavily. Uh, as you may or may not know, we're the first bank to come out with a uh, web banking, uh, an online banking in the United States uh, back in, I think it was 1995. But um, mobile was another great opportunity. And when you look at what our customers are doing today, and we have over 29 million customers that are digitally active with us. Uh, 22 million of them are uh, mobile active. And what's happening is they're coming in and interacting with the bank way more often than they ever used to when they had to walk into a branch or uh, make their way to an ATM. And so on average, if somebody's active, uh, on average, they're coming in 19 times a month to interact with us. And if I'm doing my math right, uh, that's something on the order of every 38 hours we're having an opportunity to interact with the customer. Now, that's not always a full conversation, if you will. Uh, quite often, that's coming in to look at a balance, making sure the payment's confirmed. But we find ourselves that that rhythm of connectivity with our customers is uh, dramatically increasing. And we're seeing uh, customers with mobile wanting to uh, be more informed. So they're doing things that we've never been able to do before, like alerting. So we're now sending out 37 million alerts uh, a month to our customers. Uh, about, uh, I think it's about you know, 10 million of those are you know, zero balance alerts where somebody's balance is, is nearing zero. That's something we're doing to proactively inform our customers so they can make a choice around you know, whether or not uh, they want to overdraft or move more funds into the account. And then we also have customer configurable amounts. For example, I have one um, you know, when my checking account gets too low uh, to remind me that I, I need to move money over from a savings and an investment uh, so that I can um, you know, have uh, enough funds there to, to make my payments in any given month. Uh, so you know, those are a couple of really interesting uh, trends that are just uh, you know, raw technology. And then you overlay that with uh, customer trends, like things like rewards. And you're seeing um, you know, more and more interesting reward uh, credit cards coming out into the marketplace. Uh, we've just launched one called Propel that we think is really interesting that's taking advantage of this uh, conversation that we had with our customers about what they wanted, uh, which was they didn't want to pay an annual fee but they still wanted really rich rewards. And together with our partner at American Express, we were able to put that together. And so you, you have this kind of uh, multivariate equation in terms of you have technology that's moving every day. You have customers' expectations that are moving every day. 
and you also you know have um, you know just kind of different competitive pressures and things in the marketplace and that is the soup that I do my work in every day so it's fun absolutely I completely relate to that I mean I I visit my bank maybe once every two months and I check my on my mobile app probably three or four times a week so I totally relate to that interaction that increase in interaction that Wells Fargo is seeing with their customers using the mobile platform since we're talking about the mobile banking platform what's changed for incumbent banks and how is how is Wells Fargo using the partnerships with Apple Pay, Google Pay, Samsung Pay to make payments simpler and more secure for their customers? Yeah, that's a, a great question, Keon. Um, so one of the things that really excites us is that when you think about new technology, uh, the card networks and the, the power of kind of what was latently sitting there is, is really provided to be great infrastructure as we've thought about you know, how to take advantage of new technologies. And just real quickly, things that um, are great about the card networks is they work in, uh, they move money around in real time. Uh, they have uh, considerable consumer protection, right? So um, as you're probably familiar with, but I'll just go ahead and restate, you know, if you wanted to dispute a transaction, that's something you can dispute. Uh, you know, Wells Fargo has zero liability guarantees that if you're making a payment with your card and it wasn't you that conducted the transaction, uh, you know, we will stand behind you and you're not responsible for that transaction. So there are a lot of great things built into the way the card networks work and everybody understands them. And broadly speaking, it connects, um, you know, every consumer with every merchant in, in a pretty ubiquitous way. And so when you had folks starting to think about how they could use phones in new ways that you can tackle payments, you know, Apple uh, you know, being one of the primary drivers there, we saw an exciting opportunity for ourselves to make sure that our cards were available, functional, and um, serviceable inside the Apple experience. Uh, and as you know, now I'll talk about you know, the mobile wallets more broadly. So as we think about you know, interacting with all of our partners, um, you know, so whether that's you know Apple or Google or Samsung, um, you know Fitbit, Garmin, all of them are thinking about um, trying to help customers make payments without having to carry their wallets around in a way that's convenient and secure. And so, the system that we came up with in terms of uh, contactless payments uh, does exactly that. It's incredibly convenient. Um, it took advantage of some brand new uh, kind of security standards. So while the concept had been there, uh, really integrating it as a, a common standard across all the different players in the ecosystem, uh, whereby it's something called tokenization. And without getting uh, too complicated, the idea is that the 16 digits that are embossed on your plastic card, um, you know, that's uh, kind of the, the, the baseline payment credential that we're giving you. And rather than putting that same credential into your phone, we said, well, can we put in a substitute uh, that in the, in the back end we know is connected to that other number, but it's going to be limited in scope and scale to just working inside the phone. So should you lose the phone or someone was able to obtain the number off the phone, without the phone, it's completely useless. And so that idea of actually kind of uh, dramatically decreasing uh, the, 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 the surface area for attack to just the, you know, the card number and the phone had to be connected together, was something that brings a, a lot of safety 
uh, and security to the payment system, but yet as a user or a consumer going through that experience, you, you really don't, uh, there's no new burden on you. It, it's really things that the, the bank and our other ecosystem partners um, together with the different wallets uh, and the networks are doing on your behalf to, to make it more secure. And it's incredibly convenient. Um, and it's not just contactless, which I think you're going to see even more focus on as we start to roll out in the industry more contactless cards. But there's also the ability to do in-app payments, and that's a place that we've seen really surprisingly take off uh, because people are building beautiful experiences. They might know you're on an Apple device or a Google device uh, you know, when you're in the checkout page. And so rather than asking you, you know, how you'd like to pay, uh, their first move might be to just directly render you a page and say, hey, do you want to check out with Apple Pay or Google Pay? And, and that's kind of a beautiful experience. It's very low friction because generally speaking, you know, consumers are interested in making their purchase. Payment is a required part of that. But you know, unlike me, you know, most people don't get excited about payments. It's just something they've got to do to get the goods and services that they wanted. And so when you're able to, to create these beautiful in-app experiences, or if you think about Uber where payment kind of moves into the background, it's not something you're really interacting with uh, you know, when you're uh, ordering the Uber or exiting the Uber. Uh, you know, that's really where we're doing some of our best work, which is we're making sure the payments work elegantly, elegantly pardon me, in the, um, and smoothly and securely in the background, but we're really removing any friction there. And the merchants love that because uh, you know, the, the quicker they can move somebody through the consideration phase to the purchasing phase to the checkout phase, the happier they are as they move down the funnel because what they've found is the longer you make people wait around, you know, the fewer people actually will um, go through all the steps required to actually check out. So uh, I think it's, you know, it's been one of the rare triple wins uh, that, you know, uh, you know, are often talked about in, uh, in business school but kind of hard to find in the real world. But I feel like you know, with the mobile-based payments, it's really been successful for everybody um, because you know, we continue to be involved. The consumer is getting a really um, elegant experience, and the folks that are operating those mobile um, platforms or the wearables are also making their devices more valuable and, and making and, and kind of integrating farther into the customer's life, um, which makes those devices that much more invaluable. So, uh, so it was really a cool thing, and it was exciting. I, I got to uh, lead that project uh, on behalf of the bank uh, for several of those wallets, and I think it makes a you know a big impact and it's, it's great feature functionality. Right. No, that's fantastic. I mean. Observing how the point of sale has become more and more fluid over time, that banks have made that transaction more and more seamless. I mean, it feels like we're getting to the point where there won't even be a point of sale process. You kind of just facial recognition, walk right out of the store. I think the one thing there, though, Keon, is you know you could kind of do that, but people want to express intent, right? So there's a right. moment when you know you want to say yes, I'm ready to pay. Right, because like up until then, let's say you're negotiating, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, or you're considering, and so that's one of the things as we think about, you know, yes, you could move into this, um, you know, world in which payment completely disappears. But at least I argue uh, that I think people still want a moment that they're in control of, where they express intent and kind of designate the money to move. So I might, you know, be able to identify you with facial recognition and know that you're there, but you're still going to have to do something. Uh, in, in my opinion, uh, in order to authorize payment uh, so that um, the, the customer feels comfortable and then also you get back to this 
but you want to be able to, to certify that the customer intended to pay for something. So if you think about, you know, we used to sign our credit card slips uh, in our dipping cards, um, but it, kind of in that vein, you're going to need something. That's, that's a really compelling point. Psychologically, that makes sense. And uh, clearly, you guys have spent a bit of time also thinking about this. Just moving on to the other subsectors within the payment space, we talked a bit about the point of sale. Where where do you and Wells Fargo see to be the most attractive opportunity? Is it in P2P income? Is it the point of sale? Is it B2B payments? Is it bill payment? Where is Wells focusing a lot of their time? And where do they see the most to be the most attractive space? Well, I think there's kind of opportunity everywhere. Um, right. You know, so again, you know, with our vision of wanting to help our customers succeed broadly, um, you know, that means that we're working kind of in each corner of our business to make things, um, you know, a little bit, you know, better and easier for folks. Um, you know, broadly speaking, when you look at the, you know, the payments ecosystem, uh, having customers, you know, pay with Wells Fargo and make the choice to choose a Wells Fargo product is really important. So we spend time on. You know, obviously, there's a marketing component, but really around the value creation and trying to make sure that you know, our customers feel that we're bringing them the best value. You know, we're putting them in control, and we stand behind them when something goes wrong. Uh, so those are things that we feel like are really important for us, no matter which kind of individual you know, pr- product um, you know, they're using. And then you know, as a, a, a recovering uh, CPA, you know, one of the things that I'm thinking about, too, is you know, what are the places that, um, you know, create opportunities for us to grow our business more profitably. And one of the things that I would observe is if you take a Wells Fargo customer um, who is uh, going to an ATM to withdraw cash and then bringing it, um, you know, let's just make it a, you know, my dream case back to a small business that's also a Wells Fargo customer and they're going to deposit it in a branch. You know, for that particular transaction, for people that are going through managerial accounting, um, you know, classes is something that, uh, you know, I remember in, in business school uh, fondly was there's a, there's actually a hard cost, an incremental marginal cost uh, in that transaction, you know, for us because we've had to pay for the ATM. We have to pay for the interest value of the money that's sitting there uh, so that each incremental transaction has a real cost to Wells Fargo. And when, um, you know, that person picks it up at the ATM, uh, and walks it over to the small business. I don't participate or earn anything in that particular transaction. So while I, you know, might um, have a successful business relationship with both the consumer and the small business, for which the ATM service is something that I'm, you know, doing for them as consideration of that larger business. When they go in and talk, you know, they go to the teller. I've paid rent at that, you know, location. Uh, you know, a teller or a banker is, you know, somebody that I'm, I'm paying. So, you know, there, there really is a cost to it. So when that particular type of transaction right. moves to electronic, you can then see how the incremental cost disappears. And it's really an opportunity for us uh, in an electronic payment to turn around and do something that, you know, is more profitable for the bank because I don't have to carry those, you know, the hard costs of, of armored cars driving cash around. And I can kind of turn my attention to, you know, digital payments for which there's, you know, more opportunities. And then you still have, you know, obviously customer choice always, but even in the digital space, there's still a lot of customer choice relative to is it a transaction that they want to, you know, do versus uh, kind of a, an ACH, a debit card, a credit card. 
So, um, you know, and each of those have, you know, different business characteristics for us. Um, you know, I have my own, my own opinions, but the reality is, um, you know, so much of what I call the payments, um, you know, ecosystem is really driven by, if you can imagine it in your mind, a consumer who's standing at the point of sale, looking inside their wallet and trying to decide how they would like to pay at that given retailer. And they have options, right? They can pull out cash. They can use a check. They could use a debit card. They can use a credit, you know, credit card. They might pay with rewards points. And they have all of these choices. And so what it really comes down to, in my opinion, is creating you know, products that have a clear value proposition that a consumer can really understand and, and drive good decisions for themselves as they think about their financial wellness relative to you know, how they would want to pay for something. Uh, so there's you know uh, quite quite a bit of choice, but I think we've got some great you know products and capabilities um, that are out there for folks. And then again, all else equal, um, you know as paper comes out of the system, I like to see those you know items become electronic, and we can spend less time you know trucking paper around and more time, uh, particularly like inside our branches, providing personalized advice to our customers who come in you know, for those more complicated transactions that they have. Got it. No, that's, that's very helpful to understand that. We talked a lot about all the innovation that's being used across the payment space for customers of Wells Fargo. I imagine much of that's not developed in-house. How much of that is technology that Wells Fargo chooses to invest in and develop itself versus partnerships with, you know, fintech startups, third-party vendors? And when, when does Wells Fargo end up deciding to actually partner with and invest in these Startups versus pay them as vendors. Yeah, it's a it's a great question. So one of the things I would say is, um, you know, Wells Fargo being one of the larger banks in the United States, we do have tremendous scale, and this is a business with economies of scale. So we actually do build a lot of our technology, and we um, spend nine billion dollars on technology, broadly speaking. Um, well, a huge investment. It, yeah, so it's a it's a massive investment, and that spans you know a lot of different kinds of technology, right? So it's not just all the fun and exciting ones we get to talk about, but there's a lot of kind of hardcore big iron that sits in the background that we gotta uh, run in order to, to to run the bank. But when I think about you know kind of the the edge, which is what most people um, spend time talking about, you know there there definitely are great solutions being introduced by fintech. And, and I would say, and Wells is a little unique in this sense, that um, you know the fintechs are not just necessarily competitors, um, but we also find that quite often they're customers. So we actually power in the payment space a lot of the big fintech names that you would know were the ones that are providing that that infrastructure and connecting them into the payment system. So that's been a great business, and we're um, really well-oiled at, at running that capability and makes us somewhat unique. But we also find there's a huge opportunity to partner. And partnership, I think, has really come into vogue over the last you know, two or three years as a result of some of the smaller fintechs that had a lot of confidence and a lot of runway because their valuations were growing, people were giving them um, you know, capital at increasing valuations, uh, which was exciting. But as the market cooled a little bit, I think they realized that um, – you know, going it alone was a strategy that some of them continue to pursue, but there was a huge opportunity for them to come to the banks um, and partner, and partner in a way that's really meaningful. And I think we have some exciting examples, you know, here at Wells Fargo, 
Uh, so we've partnered with SigFig to provide, um, you know, kind of a, a, a robo investing service um, that's providing kind of a, a, a low a low cost opportunity for investors to come in and take advantage of some automation to, to drive to drive and make sure their portfolios are optimized. Uh, we've also partnered up with Blend Labs. They're helping us with online mortgages. And in the last couple of years, we now have 30% of our mortgages are, are going through that online platform. It's making it a lot easier for customers oh, wow. um, to, to apply for the mortgage, which uh, if you haven't gone through the process, you know, is a difficult one these days with the requests for, you know, lots of different kinds of, of validation and files that need to be uploaded. So they, they really um, help create a more beautiful experience. And so I, I think, you know, one, you can look at them as competitors and say they're raising the bar and making us get better, and that's awesome. Uh, when they're customers and I'm helping them be successful, you know, that's a pretty magical situation too. And then you know, the partnering space um, I think is, again, another one that can, can be a win-win because you know, we do, the cost of acquisition is one of the things that I think has been a setback for some of the fintechs. It's very expensive to acquire customers, and it's also for some of them that are doing certain things uh, you know, if you're engaged in things like uh, online lending, you, the the cost of funds that you have as a as a fintech is much much higher than a bank. Um, you know, where we have deposits that are here, so it's a very low cost funding source for us. And so I think they've come back to recognize that you know the the banks have you know tremendous reach into customers. We have really low funding costs, which means we can be great funding partners. And you know, we have a real willingness uh, at Wells Fargo to embrace partners with open arms and, and bring them in and help inter- integrate them into our um, you know, in- internal kind of IT systems. And hopefully we get a chance to talk about this, but we also have the Wells Fargo Startup Accelerator, which is an area where we're doing direct outreach to entrepreneurs to try to um, give them an opportunity to bring their ideas into the bank provide some structure, get them introduced to the people that would, you know, engage with that particular product, primarily ones where they're looking to be a vendor to the bank and uh, helping to kind of almost be a mentor to those companies for, you know, the six-month term of the startup accelerator um, process. But we're also making investments, you know, in those companies. And in uh, some of the cases, we're actually – uh, so, you know, starting to use those folks as vendors, and they're doing exactly what we want, which is helping us, you know, give our customers a better experience, or they're helping us, you know, run our business uh, more profitably, or they're helping us run it more securely. Right. You you spent time as the portfolio manager of the Startup Accelerator, right? I did. Yeah. Um, so kind of hearkening back to my early days in Silicon Alley, it was a space that I always was uh, interested in, and when I came to Wells Fargo. I actually came in the capacity where we were making strategic investments, and then just about four or five years ago, I had the opportunity to, um, you know, create a program as part of the, the innovation group here at Wells Fargo, which is our kind of focused enterprise effort to direct our innovation resources holistically uh, across all the different businesses, and to do it with a mission statement that was different than a lot of other kind of incubators and accelerators start out with. And so for us, it, it wasn't about providing people with a space to get together and, and, you know, access to a CFO or a CMO by the hour. What we wanted to do is to give people access to like a real customer uh, and one that was a patient customer who was willing to work with them 
And our sweet spot, um, which we've kind of stuck with over the years, is for a company that maybe has never sold into the Fortune 500 or a company that's never sold into the banking industry. Like both right. of those are big hurdles, and having somebody who's willing to kind of work with you for those six months while you either refine your value proposition or you step up your security or you add the level of implementation and service that you, know, you need to support somebody of our size because we have you know, such a large customer base. So all of those have you know, proven to be you know, really great conversations that I think you know, for both us and the company, we've walked away uh, with some real learnings. And again, it's just it's very unique to have that, you know, that patient customer who's, who's there as kind of part of a formal process to you know, give you feedback, bounce ideas off with, and is really championing you through the process. Uh, and so we've had um, you know, great success, and we you know, continue to make investments there, which is really exciting. No, it's a terrific mission statement. I'm sure uh, the members of your accelerator have benefited greatly from the Wells Fargo partnership. Just because we were talking about investing in fintechs, incumbent banks investing in fintechs, I know CFOs are concerned about inflated goodwill values on balance sheets. Is it worth the cost to gain the proprietary technology over your competitors? Where does the pendulum flip there to decide to really then invest in a company and have it join your accelerator? Well, for us, it's really around, you know, again, what I would call like the, you know, the business line advocate. So where you know, the business lines, so what happens is kind of in general, two things happen. So one is we have an open casting call. So for people with ideas, you know, please submit them. Uh, when they come in through that intake process, you know, they're reviewed carefully. And then what we do is we, um, after that initial review, what we do is we take them to a subject matter expert. So it might be somebody, you know, in mortgage or investments and in auto, deposits, credit card, and, and, you know, kind of shop it around to see if it gets some support. We also mm-hmm. have situations where the lines of business bring ideas and say, hey, I have an accelerator candidate that I'm excited about uh, and that I want to work with. So in both of those situations, uh, we, what we're looking to do is we have a it's, a, it's not an exclusive accelerator. So we've you know, invested in firms that other banks have invested in. You know, we are happy when one of our um, accelerator participants, you know, gets investments from other people. Because in a lot of these spaces, they're not doing something that is, you know, exclusively proprietary. And generally, um, in a lot of these, although it's not a requirement for the investment, but generally for a lot of the ones that, that we've gone ahead with, there's actually some ecosystem benefit. So if you take a company like uh, like a SimSpace, you know they're they're doing uh, you know cyber event preparation and planning, and so that's something that's very important to Wells Fargo. But it's very, you know we're part of an industry where we want everybody to have fantastic cybersecurity, and so I don't mind if they have every bank in the coin. Right, I'm just trying to you know, inc- you know encourage them. I'm trying to learn. You know what they have to offer. I want to engage with them, and you know, quite often, you know, we f- we find ourselves, um, you know, collaborating with other banks, you know, on issues like cybersecurity, and even things you would think that would be more proprietary, like payments. You know, it is a network game. You cannot, um, you know, by yourself set up a payment system. You to be successful, you need to have lots and lots of consumers who carry your card in their wallet. Going back to that image of somebody who's opening their wallet to pay for something. And then you need a lot of merchants. And usually, 
that kind of a network game uh, is one that you know you need a lot of other people playing in. So uh, we haven't, you know, it has, we haven't run up and against the proprietary issue, you know, all that often, to be honest. And then when we're bringing in, usually it's a, you know, it's a niche piece of a much broader value proposition that we're bringing to our customers in, in terms of our total relationship with them. That's that's really interesting. That's helpful to understand. Uh, I want to be conscientious of your time. Do you have do you have time for two more questions? Sure. Awesome. So uh, you read a lot about the battle for distribution and how that starts with deposits among fintech startups. You've seen Wealthfront, Stash, Robinhood all launch debit cards, um, trying to get control of that deposit space. How do incumbent banks kind of counteract that? Are they fighting fintech with fintech? Or is this a totally different demographic that these fintech startups are targeting? I mean, I think the answer is kind of all of the above. See, um, <laughs> so, you know, if I just look at my, you know, myself, like I find myself, uh, you know, with, you know, small pocket, what I call pocket deposits in, in lots of different um, places where they're creating unique value for me. Right, so right. if it's about like you know, Zelle is a fantastic peer-to-peer capability, uh, and mm-hmm. we think that it's one that's really exciting because it's embedded inside the banking relationship and takes advantage of the trust and the reach. Right, but there's an opportunity like, hey, like I might have somebody who, you know, paid me for, you know, last weekend inside, you know, one of the other, um, you know, peer-to-peer uh, programs, and so, you know, it's like now I have a balance there. But it's not my primary banking account. And so I think one of the things that you know we're really focused on at Wells Fargo is, you know, how do we provide that that core, the place where you know you control your financial life, the 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 place that you can see the things that are happening. So that's why, for example, we have Control Tower, which helps pull in information like where are your reoccurring payments, uh, giving you control. You can turn on and off your debit card, on and off international. Um, and we've been running some kind of commercials around that lately. So, you know, we, we think being that primary place is really important. Now, I would love to have all of those pocket deposits as well, but, um, you know, that's an opportunity where, again, people are creating unique value, and kudos to them for doing that, uh, where they're able to, you know, go and reach out and collect some deposits. And then for a lot of those folks, uh, you know, the debit card is an important way for them to, um, you know, to create value out of that relationship, um, uh, you know, particularly for some of the, the smaller folks, um, you know, they're able to earn, uh, you know, card fees on any spending that, that goes through that card. So, you know, it's another way that, for example, if they're trying to create bots by offering discounts in one place, you know, they might be looking to try to kind of, you know, collect money in another. And a debit card is obviously like a logical place you can do that, and you know, it's one where the you know the consumer is not directly impacted by that. So, you know, you've seen that be pretty popular. But, you know, I, I think, you know, as a, as a strategist that sits inside the bank, I'm always excited when people, um, you know, connect with consumers and create new value that nobody's thought of. And, you know, the benefit of being at a large bank is we always have the opportunity to come in and craft our own product and value proposition, learn from the marketplace, and, you know, try to create products and value propositions that, you know, are meaningful to our customers to keep that primary household uh, capability, but also to go back, uh, for example, where somebody has proven that a new market exists, 
So whether that's in P2P or whether that's in robo-investing, and over time, I can go ahead and do my competitive response. And so we craft, you know, Zelle with our, you know, industry, which I think, again, is a fantastic solution. Or, you know, as I mentioned earlier with uh, SigFig, you know, we were able to kind of craft our own, you know, value proposition that will be out in the marketplace. We'll tell our customers about it, and we'll have an opportunity to figure out if that's the right value proposition for them. Yeah, and you also have Greenhouse by Wells Fargo now, which seems like a very powerful tool for developing deposit accounts, simplifying bills, Seems like something that millennials would be very interested in as well. Yeah, and and so, and so for that, I mean, you know, again, taking inspiration from what we're seeing in the marketplace, we recognize that, you know, not everyone wants to come into a full-fledged bank account, and folks that are new to banking, which is where Greenhouse is really focused, so this could be somebody maybe earning their first paycheck and, and trying to figure out, you know, where they're going to deposit it. Um, you know, that's an opportunity for us, not only to connect with a new customer and, 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 you know, start to create a lifetime relationship with that customer. But for us, uh, it's also important. Uh, financial health is really part of our ethos of, you know, how, how are we going to help our customers be successful financially? And Greenhouse really encapsulates that in a sense that um, it's an account where as money comes in, uh, you're able to put it into kind of a set-aside account, uh, and that is differentiated from your spending account. And so when your money comes in, we create little envelopes, or you create your own envelopes, I guess, technically, and you can slot in money like, hey, I just got $1,000 to deposit into my account, so I'm going to put $500 towards my rent. I'm going to put $50 towards my cell phone bill. And so you can actually begin to fill up those envelopes. And we learned this from actually like uh, going with an ethnography team and hanging out with customers that they actually use paper envelopes and cash uh, so we said, you know, why don't we just do something that already works, do that, and then in the spending account, like if you don't have the money that's available to spend, uh, there's a limit. The way, you know, so when you go out, your debit card, you know, will not actually complete the transaction. And that's something that, you know, you can go back, and if you had money in your set-aside accounts, you can move it across if you wanted. So the customer's always in control. But we're, it's really about trying to craft healthy habits because it's so important for folks to get in the habit of, you know, uh, understanding their monthly bills, um, you know, paying those bills in a timely way so that they're not paying, you know, extra charges, late fees, if they can manage down any interest that they're paying. Uh, that's really fantastic and just sets you on a totally different growth curve for your life if you get in the habit, particularly if you can get in the habit of setting aside and truly saving money each month. Uh, it just it pays dividends because of, you know, the compound interest right, over time. Uh, so that's something that's really exciting and we feel really good about. Uh, and we think it's actually pretty unique inside the market. Obviously, there are lots of other digital-only banks. There are lots of other kind of, uh, you know, spending advisory types of ideas. But we think we really nailed it. And then, you know, again, in terms of like how it's constructed, you know, it doesn't have overdraft. And so that's a product that maybe if you were to leave Greenhouse and kind of graduate into a full-fledged account, you know, there you do have the ability, and that's an important feature function for some folks. But when people are just starting off, it, this kind of creates a, a space where that's not something they're going to have to work with. But once they create, you know, good habits and they want to have a more broad relationship, um, that they can move up into those products. And it also doesn't have a monthly service fee. Uh, so again, it, 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 it works really well for folks that are just kind of getting off the ground. And like I said in the beginning, that are you know new to banking, opening that first account, uh, and you know trying to focus on their financial health. So we're we're really excited about that too. It's 
uh, kind of under a limited pilot right now, but we'll be uh, bringing it uh, nationwide later in the year. Absolutely. That seems like a huge value add to the marketplace. Three out of five millennials carry credit card balances month to month. 45% don't even know the rate on their card. Instilling those habits of financial independence and just keeping track of what you're doing and pre-allocating those expenses is going to be definitely a useful tool. Uh, so our la last question for you. As someone who earned an MBA, what piece of advice do you have for current MBA candidates looking to break into fintech? Um, so I, I would say a, a couple things, right? Um, you know, one is it kind of depends on like what your risk tolerance is. So one one way right. in the kind of the fintech world it is to you know work with a more um, you know a larger state legacy type of of organization where you get in, you learn the business, and you become a subject matter expert, and then you can kind of move across to some of the riskier fintechs where there might be like more upside, the ability to earn equity, uh, and really jump the curve. So that's kind of you know one way in is come in, build up your knowledge, and move across. The other one is for some folks, it's like, why wait? You know, there's some great fintechs uh, that are doing some really interesting things. Um, you know, some have amazing technology, some have really powerful mission statements. Uh, and so that's something for folks that, you know, you, know, you might find to be really compelling. And, and my one piece of advice there is to just step back with a grain of salt. Like you can get excited about the ideas, but recognize that if you go back and you look in the year uh, 2000 uh, and you look at, you know, the, the, one of the first fintech booms um, leading up to that, and then in 2000 how things kind of had melted down, is, you know, there's not that many companies that survived you know, that what I sometimes will call this spring of a thousand flowers. So you'd had a thousand fintech companies and not many of them made it through. So I think if you're looking for something on the riskier side, spend a little bit of time really understanding, you know, is it, what's the key to success? You know, I love arbitrage plays where you can just see, you know, as long as you, you know, do this and this, uh, you know, you have an opportunity to make money with every transaction. So it's just about creating more transactions. But okay. understanding how the firm intends to make money and then looking who's investing in it and trying to look for folks that are fully funded and funded by, you know, really good backers because they've done their work, uh, if you will. And so top-tier VCs, you know, that's a great place to work. And, and, you know, I think in the Valley, people often refer to success is usually preceded by a couple failures. Um, but if you're in there and working with some, you know, VC-backed companies, you know, if one doesn't work out, the next one usually is, is kind of right there around the corner. And then I, I wouldn't be afraid, you know, if you step up and you look at Wells Fargo, you look at some of the other big banks, like we have huge innovation efforts. We're doing amazing things. Uh, so there are jobs here um, that let you be on the, on the front line. And I think that those are uh, pretty amazing opportunities. And I think there are some companies, you know, once you spend time, there are a lot of companies that are not, household names in this industry that are important infrastructure players, important enablers. And so if it's something that you're really interested in, I think, you know, kind of take the time to understand the value chain and who are some of the players and, and, and just where you have passion. Because I think at the end of the day, that's one of the most important things. You know, where is a place where you're going to, you know, come to work and work on problems that you really love uh, and that have an impact, you know, for you? Because uh, I think you'll be fully engaged in those efforts and, you know, you'll learn a lot. Uh, and I think with those two things, you know, you'll be off to have a great career, and don't don't be afraid, um, you know, to make a choice. Um, and you know, I, sometimes people think, well, 
you know, I have to have this very specific career path. But I think sometimes, um, you know, if you follow your passion, things will kind of unfold uh, in, in a way that will work out for you. So, so I think back, it was 20 years ago. It's hard to believe. And I guess the last thing I would say is time moves fast, right? Um, so don't be complacent. Um, but my best advice is also, you know, be patient. So patient comes in six-month doses. Because uh, right. you know, often when people are going through their careers, they get impatient at a point, and sometimes you know they'll leave or force a change when things were actually coming in their favor. They just didn't see it yet. But I think after 18 months, you know, then there's that opportunity to say, "Hey, are you being a little bit too complacent?" And you know, you need to you know push a little bit harder in the space that you're in, or you know, think about making some sort of a change. Not hard rules, but just kind of little guidelines that seem like they're relevant 20 years later. Great, and that's great advice for people in my position. Uh, thank you so much. You've been extremely generous through your time today, giving us a peek through the looking glass at how Wells Fargo is contributing to FinTech and the entire marketplace as a whole. really appreciate your time. Thank you, and it's been a great pleasure, and uh, thanks for everyone uh, out there in the uh, Wharton FinTech podcast, a loyal audience uh, for the opportunity to spend a little bit of time with you. Uh, uh, I enjoyed it as well, and thanks for the time, Yeah. Great, thank you.